From Schwartz Media, I'm Osman Faruqi. This is 7am. For the past five years, Dr Alan Finkel has been Australia's chief scientist, which means he's been on the front line of Australia's climate wars. This year, he was appointed special advisor to the federal government on low emissions technology. In the latest quarterly essay, Getting to Zero, Dr Finkel outlines how Australia can harness new technology to rapidly transition to a low emissions future. But some of Australia's leading scientists have expressed concern about elements of Dr Finkel's plan, questioning whether it's ambitious enough. Today, Alan Finkel on his plan for our energy future and whether the Australian government should be moving faster. Alan, in your ideal world, what does Australia's energy sector, what does our energy mix look like, say, by 2050? In the fundamentals, it's a pretty straightforward uh, answer that I've got for you, and it's electricity. I've for many, many years been talking about what I call the electric planet. So the logic is we've got a problem, and the problem is greenhouse gas emissions. Three quarters of that problem comes from burning fossil fuels, oil, coal and gas for our energy needs. We can't switch off our energy needs. It's absolutely fundamental to civilization. I don't think we can, in a substantial fraction, diminish it. So ultimately, to replace all the fossil fuels that we use for all the energy activities across our society, we pretty much have to triple the amount of electricity that we currently use, and it's all got to be clean electricity. If you think about our starting position globally, there are seven large-scale sources of energy. Oil, coal and gas, and we just said we're going to get out of those. In some countries, nuclear to make nuclear electricity. In some countries, they will be able to get all the electricity they need from hydroelectricity. In Australia, that's not a realistic growth opportunity. We haven't built a large-scale hydroelectric dam for 50 years. So if we get 5 or 6% from the renewable hydroelectricity, we're going to get 95% or thereabouts from solar and wind because we're, we're just not doing nuclear and there's nothing else. So we're going to be very dependent on two sources of energy, solar and wind, not only for that replacement of our existing electricity supply, but for the tripling that will enable us to remove fossil fuels from all of our economy. Mm, the, the kind of vision you're outlining, Alan, of, of a future powered predominantly by renewable energy does sound pretty compelling. I, I'm wondering what you think are the steps we need to take to actually get there. There are many things that need to be done, but we're not starting off a zero base. So let me just quickly tell you where we're at and then sort of extrapolate into the future. Um, despite what some of our listeners might think, Australia is actually doing quite well on this journey. Uh, we have some uh, world bragging rights. So Australia has the highest per capita installed ca- solar capacity and the highest per capita solar generation. It's because of the renewable energy target. It's because of the states and the territories investing. It's because of private industry for marketing reasons, through shareholder activism, uh, deciding to purchase solar and wind and therefore attract investors to build into that. We are currently at the point where 28% of our electricity 
last year, for the whole of the year, 28% came from renewables, of which the vast majority was solar and wind, and a little bit was from hydro. We've got the highest percentage in the world of solar rooftops. So we've started a journey on investing in solar and wind, which is going quite well. It will need a lot more nurturing to get there, and it also will need a lot of investment in storage or something to what is called firm the supply. As you know, solar and wind are variable. Right. What do you mean by that, firming the supply, and what would it actually entail? So it's not as easy as what people think. A lot of people think, well, I've got a solar panel at home, I've got a battery in the basement, problem solved, why can't the government do it? Well, because the electrical system is much bigger and much more complex than your home. And you know what? When things aren't working well in your home, you're still connected to the grid and that's your backstop. But the grid itself, the solar and wind generators need a backstop. Today, that backstop uh, comes just from the massive quantity of electricity being produced by coal and natural gas in the grid and hydro. But as the coal-fired generators exit and the percentage of solar and wind variable electricity generation increases, uh, it gets more and more difficult to tide over those times. But we have to. We have to backstop. Batteries are beginning to help and will help more and more. But even though they're undergoing an incredible reduction in price and increase in availability, if we were to go as hard and fast as we would possibly go with solar and wind, batteries wouldn't solve the problem for the short term. Natural gas is the, forgive the pun, natural gas is the natural solution to providing the backstop for solar and wind electricity until we get to some future time where we've got oodles and oodles of batteries to tide us over. Natural gas is, is often presented as a, a low emissions alternative. It's a fossil fuel, but it's, it's presented as a lower emissions alternative to coal. And it's forming a significant part of the federal government's response, both in terms of developing a low emissions pathway, but also the government's response in terms of developing their post-pandemic kind of economic infrastructure plan. Just how much better for the environment is natural gas than coal? And is it good enough that it will actually avoid us hitting those runaway climate targets? Uh, yes, when you generate a unit of electricity and the, the unit we're talking about in the grid is called a megawatt hour, just a big unit of electricity, natural gas generators on average in the electricity grid are about half the emissions of coal per megawatt hour, even if you include the so-called upstream emissions from the production and pipelining and processing. Because when people say that, oh my gosh, natural gas is much worse than you think because you've left out the upstream emissions, don't forget you have to look at that for the coal-fired generators as well, and they also have upstream emissions. So per megawatt hour, natural gas is twice as good or half as bad, whichever way you want to look at it. So using natural gas for firming solar and wind and thereby enabling you to bring in more solar and more wind more quickly is actually a good thing. And of course, people worry about the long term. Well, first of all, it's a smallish amount, so I wouldn't worry too much for the long term. But also there are solutions to that. More and more batteries, eventually those natural gas generators won't be called upon. 
So overall, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that we're not locking in and getting a bad residual problem by using natural gas for firming. And if it helps us to accelerate the introduction of solar and wind, so be it. We'll be back in a moment. The City of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. We live in the end not in countries that are settled places. They're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday paper. No hot takes. Alan, you're describing a situation where we would continue to use natural gas, but just to firm our alliance on renewable energy. But at the moment, the the current federal government's plan, and I guess this is the same with the gas industry, is to actually drill and export it overseas to make a lot of money. So would you prefer them to focus more specifically on just supplying gas for the needs that you've outlined? Look, Osman, it's, it's a very complex... The question sounds simple, but it's, the answers are complex... I don't think there's any evidence, certainly nothing I've seen and I've looked, that would indicate that if one country, say Australia, withheld its coal or natural gas exports, that that would make any difference to the total amount of coal and natural gas burnt in the world. If we export less, Qatar will export more, Russia will export more, Saudi Arabia will... Just gas and Saudi Arabia will export more oil and things like that. If we export less coal another country will export more. Uh, And I'm not going to get into the argument that our coal is better than other countries Mm. and therefore it's better. I'm just saying that if you're taking a global perspective, I'm not sure that it will make a difference. If you're doing it to send a signal, fine, but it's a huge economic cost. And one has to look at a signal that doesn't change the global outcome versus the significant domestic economic cost So it's not a call that I'm going to make. Right. But what kind of message does it send to the world that Australia is saying, well, we won't burn gas, but we'll sell it to you and you can do it? Isn't there a moral imperative for us to take a stronger stance than that? I I think that particular message would get lost in the rest of the world. The, there is a moral imperative for us to participate, not passively, but actively in the multilateral fora that are increasingly dominating the opportunities and the discussions. So there's the Biden administration, which has made it very clear that it's going to invest massively in the clean energy transition, but they also are putting pressure on countries around the world. There's the Glasgow COP26 coming up at the end of the year, and the British are putting a lot of pressure on other countries to increase their ambition. And Australia has to be 
a member of that. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing now is I've been appointed by the government as a special advisor to the Australian government on low emissions technologies. And that's literally to help the government to identify low emissions technology opportunities that we can co-develop with other countries and, and industry uh, and invest in, in order to speed up their rate of cost decline. Right. And you mentioned the Biden administration, as well as the UK, who are both putting considerable pressure, as you said, on other countries to be more ambitious. We've already seen Australia criticise on the world stage for our current trajectory. So do you think more needs to be done here? More needs to be done, and the current government recognises that. So last year, the government put out the first low emissions technology statement, and they committed to putting out an updated statement every year. And if you think of the analogy, each of those statements is like a kilometre marker along the highway. So those statements year after year become the low emissions technology investment roadmap. Now, the first statement last year uh, identified priorities across the economy. So there are five big priorities. One of them is clean hydrogen. So even though we already have a national hydrogen strategy, we've further embraced that into this. The second is storage, like battery storage for the electricity system. The third one was green metals, specifically zero emissions steel and zero emissions aluminium. So the fourth is geo-sequestration through carbon capture and storage or carbon capture use and storage. And the fifth is biosequestration, in particular through soil organic carbon. So things are moving in the right direction. Uh, you know, are they moving fast enough? Faster is better, but they are moving. It does, it does strike me as, as, as slightly odd that in that list of five, which includes a few things that, you know, despite people trying for a long time, including in Australia, haven't really demonstrated large-scale viability. I'm thinking things like geo-sequestration. Uh, it includes those things, but it, it doesn't include explicitly renewable energy. Well, it does. Well, not explicitly, but the only reason for the second one being storage is to bring on more and more renewable energy. So I don't think that there is logic in the government making a priority on the solar and wind directly, but the one-step removed uh, investment in trying to support the reduction in price and ease of deployment of storage to support the solar and wind is extremely logical because that is the limiting factor at the moment. It sounds like, Alan, that you're sort of outlining a, a vision, a roadmap that, you know, the use of technology, the way you're sort of describing it, sounds like we might not need to do anything that radical in terms of the way we live, the way that our economy and society works. Things can, you know, be fast forward a few decades down the track and things look pretty similar, we live pretty similar lives, but what's happening in the background, the technology that's operating and powering our phones and our lights, that's where the solution lies. Is that, is that a fair summary? That is a very fair summary. I don't think that the alternatives to changing our lifestyle such as global population control or a behavioural change so that we all ride, you know, bicycles instead of cars are likely. They've been talked about for decades. And yes, of course, there are bike lanes in the city now and things like that, but that doesn't make a substantial difference to the greenhouse gas emissions. So people have indicated that by their pocketbook, they're not really willing to pay a lot more and they're not really willing to give up their chosen lifestyles. In fact, 
people expect to see every year, or certainly cumulatively over decade by decade, improvements in their cost of living and their lifestyles. And with technology, we can deliver it. So I could summarise your question and my answer by saying that my expectation is that we can have our cake and eat it too. Alan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Pleasure. Andrew O'Hagan's latest, Caledonian Road, explores one man's epic fall from grace. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew to discuss this and the state of modern Britain. All that and more, wherever you listen. Also in the news today, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews says he's recovering steadily from a serious back injury and is now walking for about 18 minutes a day. Andrews suffered broken ribs and a fractured vertebrae in his spine after slipping last month. He narrowly avoided permanent spinal damage and has taken six weeks off work. And COVID-19 restrictions will be lifted in northern New South Wales from tonight after the state recorded no community transmission for another day. Restrictions were applied to the Byron, Ballina, Lismore and Tweed shires after a local man tested positive for COVID-19. But from midnight, the region will be brought back in line with the rest of the state. I'm Osman Faruqi. This is 7am. See you tomorrow. 